And I'm joined today by two colleagues. I'm going to let them introduce themselves for obvious reasons. <laughs> so please go ahead. Hello, everybody. I'm John Forty. I'm curator of historic landscape at Strawberry Bank Museum. Um, have been for about eight or nine years now. Before that, I was director of horticulture at Plymouth Plantation for about 12 years. Um, Michelle and I together started Slow Food Seacoast, and I work now with Slow Food USA, helping to form a new biodiversity committee. And at the end of this month, I'll be in Italy with an international congress working on biodiversity issues and food issues, um, which will be another great pleasure like this weekend has been. But I'll tell you more as we get to a talk. So I'll leave you to our next speaker. <laughs> I'm Kathy Stanton. I think we all do food stuff because we're just hoping to get to Italy, right? <laughs> um, I'm an anthropologist. I teach at Tufts University in Boston. Uh, I study historic sites and living history, commemoration, uh, reenactment, things like that. Um, and I have a great interest in how to connect those, how, how to connect our knowledge of the past with contemporary um, social movements for social change. Um, I was hired uh, three years ago now to do an ethno-historical study of a uh, national park, a presidential site in eastern New York State, Martin Van Buren's old post-presidential estate, which now includes his farm. And so that got me into doing kind of an ethno-history of the farm, included right up to the present and looking at the contemporary food movement, which finally gave me a way to kind of sync all of those things together. So that's where I'm sort of coming from with this now. So our format today will be three of us speaking, and we'll each do a short talk about a different area of um, the relationship between historic sites, farming, and agriculture, and, um, and food. And we're going to begin with Kathy, who is going to be presenting some of the really fascinating historical framework about how uh, small uh, living history sites or farm sites uh, were developed. So Kathy, please come on up. How's that? If I talk like that, it's okay. Good. Okay. So my part of the presentation is to try to give us a little bit of historical context for thinking not about food and farming per se, but kind of another layer to think about how it relates to um, historical a, a sense of history and kind of a sense of pastness, particularly around small-scale food and farming. And that's really what we're focusing on. I think when I, I finally thought this through that for me, the difference is not so much organic or local or um, you know sustainable, but scale. It's really about the scale on which food is being produced and, and consumed. Um, so I'm going to think about how um, real agriculture, kind of the, the um, participating in the actual active farm economy, and historic sites that preserve or represent agriculture diverged over time, and some of the surprising things as I got looking into that history. And then as we're starting to see them, I, th I think, and this is the exciting thing, starting to see them reconverge, but there are some sort of obstacles, I think, that have to be negotiated in that, that reconvergence because of how they separated in the first place. Um, so, and my my sense is that if we understand that divergence more, then that will help us more kind of figure out how we can bring them back together in this really um, sort of productive nexus. So, um, one quick caveat is that my examples are all drawn from the northeastern U.S. because that's where I'm based and where this the study that I did of Martin Van Buren National Historic Site was kind of looking at that context. Um, and also because that's where small-scale farming kind of had this aura of, of being in the past 
first. And it's also where a lot of the sustainability movement stuff has has really taken root and, and grown most quickly. So I think there's reasons to do that. But I also realize that's not necessarily typical of the whole country. And one thing that might be fun in discussion is to really compare a little bit more regionally, because I think that's an important part of this kind of bigger picture that we don't necessarily have yet. So it would be fun to hear from, from people from other regions. So, um, okay. So let's see. So this is the farm that I was studying, Martin Van Buren's um, post-presidential um, farm. Um, he retired to become a, a gentleman farmer in the, the mid-19th century um, and was actually kind of a, a model farmer and, and used the farm to make a lot of fairly sharp political statements about free labor and um, uh, the kind of the value of the northern way of life as opposed to the southern way of life in the, the antebellum years. Um, and my uh, my initial assumption when I went into this was that kind of okay by the time this um, that not long after that not long after the Civil War you would see sort of a sharp separation as industry was sort of gaining ascendancy and as more people were becoming urbanized and you know by the turn of the 20th century when um, more people were actually living in cities than in the country and people were were not farming as much that you know kind of by the later 19th century you'd start to see this sharp divergence and that's when we got all romantic and nostalgic about you know going back to the old farmstead that kind of thing um, and as usual when you get looking at anything historically and I got looking at the details, and it was much more complicated than that. The big outline of the story was not wrong. Certainly by the, you know, by the time Van Buren came back to farm, one of the reasons he was making these statements was that he, he you know, pe- people, there was a perception that farming was in danger or in decline. People were moving to western New York State and Ohio and the frontier and then farther west. Um, so that was, that big history is not wrong, but what was happening in the Northeast actually, uh, there, the continuities were as interesting as the as the breaks and changes over time. Um, and a couple of things that struck me about this: one is that the the fears of um, the, the perceptions and fears that that small farming was in decline; those fears go way farther back than I realized. I was sort of thinking that that was of that kind of later 19th century. Almost to the beginning of industrialization, people were fearful that we were losing the small farms and the farm economies. So this was, um, you know, 18. 40s, but this, sort of from the 18 teens and 20s, people were were publishing um, and and sort of reforming and forming organizations to try to keep small farmers productive and make make them more productive. Bring them often it was in line with you know industrial production was um, making new demands on efficiency and production and ideas about how we were supposed to be more productive. And so they were thinking that farmers should kind of get in line with that. But there was also kind of a um, that that Jeffersonian defense of the bedrock values of the nation were all tied up with the, you know, with the small farmer, the kind of the values of, of owning land and, and producing food. Um, so that um, that far, that um, reform and revitalization movement history actually dates to the very early 19th century, um, which was something that seems important to, to kind of bear in mind. And the other thing was that there's a surprisingly and Almost equal, not quite as long, but almost equally long history of kind of hybrid forms of farming and representation or tourism and what we now might call agritourism. So um, farmers particularly blending um, things that were designed to make money and, and keep their farms solvent, but that also were designed to attract visitors or to, you know, to kind of blend the, the real and the represented. So that goes back, um, sort of stoked in a lot of ways by, um, the, the arts and writing of the, um, the, you know, this is the 1830s. So, the, you know, the, 
the mid-19th-century years of looking at these landscapes in kind of more romanticized or, or mythologizing ways, kind of the myth of the, you know, the, the garden from which the nation had sprung. So Hudson River Valley painters, um, a lot of these sort of sublime landscapes, but there's, you know, there's always a farm. There's, there's often like a, a fantastic crag with three cows in the foreground, <laughs> and that the cows sort of signal it's not just this sublime landscape, but it's pastoral as well. So that association is really clear when you look at these these kinds of landscapes. Courier and Ives kind of um, a little bit later on, but that you know that that nostalgic cast to um, to the, the older farming pastoral kinds of economies. And what this was doing was building this pre-Civil War kind of infrastructure of tourism and people starting to go and visit these places and going going back. So as they're moving out, they're also kind of going back aided, of course, by the technologies of industry, in, part, in particular the railroad. So this strange paradoxical, you know, as, as the society develops and becomes more industrialized and more distant and urbanized, that it's enabling this, um, this kind of re-engagement with the, with the farm. Um, and then there were um, contemporary groups at that, you know, contemporary 19th century um, that were perceived, even though they were making a living in the, um, you know, in the real farm economy, perceived as being associated with the past. So people like the Shakers or the Amish um, or, or places that were um, still farming in kind of the, the old ways, even though they were often doing it in very innovative ways. So Shaker tourism was actually a fairly big business, part and parcel with these Shaker villages being built in the first place, you know, hand in hand. So um, they invited people to come and look, and to some extent, they were putting themselves on display um, in, in ways that are, you know, not dissimilar from the way a lot of farmers are doing today. Um, and then I couldn't find a great image of this, although I know they're out there, but as you get into the later 19th century and into the early 20th century, a lot of farmers throughout the Northeast, and particularly women farmers, um, started offering accommodations and you know, farm stay tourism, and, and that was a, um, and a really important adjunct source of income for you know, you know, butter and eggs and, and tourists. Um, and that was something that's uh, looking at the, um, you know, the kind of the tax rolls and, and how people were making money, that that was a really important secondary source of income for a lot of farms. Um, so they would add accommodations. They would uh, market what we'd now call value-added or, you know, kind of regional specialties. Um, and they you, you could help with the harvest. You could go slop the hogs, you know. And so experience tourism, right? And so um, that was something that uh, was a, that was one way to keep a farm afloat. So, um, so, um, so there's a lot of these hybrid farm experiences really from the, you know, early to, to mid-19th century and a lot of overlaps between kind of reform Product projects, some of which were oriented to to the market, to making farmers more um, economically viable, but also preservationist, conservationist, and then recreational or these kind of more escapist um, approaches to small scale farming. So shaker tourism, um, model model farms, and kind of expositions. I mean, Martin Van Buren was kind of set himself up as a model farmer. Um, another one is then um, this is the reason I had. Why is James Fenimore Cooper in there? Why, he's there because his farm, which was an early 19th century farm in Cooperstown, New York, became a model farm um, 100 years later. Edward Severn Clark, who was a 
think he was a financier or an inventor, or, and sort of often these sort of wealthy elites who you know had the money to build a, an arts and crafts barn like that, um, and so that became a, a model dairy farm in the early 20th century. Um, Shelburne fa- Farms in uh, northern Vermont, um, same thing. It was a Vanderbilt uh, related family that uh, took 30 little farms and made this massive you know 4,000 acre sort of model baronial estate up there and built again these fantastic buildings. Um, so um, what's really interesting to me is that a lot of these sites form the infrastructure of our contemporary kind of living history farm, um, it, what, what we think of now as kind of the iconic farm sites were actually transformed from the model, the working model farms, which are already a little removed from kind of the real economy because these people didn't need to make money at it. They were, they were doing it often to show to, to try to improve breeds and methods and, um, you know, kind of jumpstart a local economy, all those things we're trying to do now. Um, but they were a step removed from kind of a hard scrabble, trying to year to year, trying to make a living as farmers. Um, but a lot of them then turned into the, the iconic farm sites of today. So Cooperstown, you know, it went from being a, a, a real farm to a model farm to being a farm history site, which it still is, obviously. Um, Hancock Shaker Village and a lot of the Shaker Villages um, were now now into you know, tourist sites, some of which are edging back toward the real farm economy again in interesting ways. Um, Shelburne Farms became a, a non-profit. They couldn't figure out what to do with this, this massive estate for a long time and turned it into a non-profit educational center in the 70s. And then um, same period, and, and the period I'm talking about is this interesting one after World War II, when we get you know places like Old Sturbridge Village and Plymouth Plantation that similarly kind of represent this agrarian um, or, or agricultural lifestyle. So the interesting thing about this is that that sharp break, that that movement right just into being an educational site or a foundation or a, um, a museum or a historic site when I got looking at it, didn't really happen on a large scale until after World War II. That's that assumption that I thought it had happened much earlier, that, you know, it, small-scale farming was done and, and, and some of these sites were preserved. But these hybrid forms actually take up the slack right until after World War II. So it's really the petroleum economy that, you know, that really took over and industrial, really sort of large-scale industrialized agriculture um, driven by petroleum and and uh, feasible over really long distances with with truck transportation and refrigeration and you know things that became sort of the norm at that point and that didn't happen until after world war 2 so a lot of our really um that the kind of the the sites that we look at as sort of typical or that we think of in terms of farm history sites come out of that period and my sense is that that sort of skews um Maybe our our perceptions of what they are, and it, it has um, it has made it difficult in terms of things like f- funding and audiences and methods and networks that we're all part of, to to reconnect with this fantastically burgeoning new food movement that's happening. So you know that's just springing up everywhere and is very um, in a lot of ways very youthful and energetic and and quite critical and you know very political and. It's all kinds of things. It's also there's very romantic edges of it. There's um, you know quite good business edges of it. So there's a lot of stuff going on out there. But my sense is that there's um, there's been some sort of slippage in terms of being able to connect. And my sense is it's because of when a lot of these sites were made that it it really is a um, we think of them as historic sites that are long separate from the from the real economy. So reconnecting them with that has been sort of tricky. Um, so. 
and what we see is, and I'll just finish with this, but um, you know, in, in this part of the world, and especially you know, through Pennsylvania and, and New England, so the, the blue dots on that map represent an increase of, I think, more than 20 farms in a given place, and the red dots uh, represent a, a loss. And of course, you know, farm lo- and there's a lot of farm loss still going on, obviously, in the region. But throughout the oldest part of the region, which is where these sites and these histories of kind of the hybrid forms of survival are, there's a real revival. There's, I mean, the numbers of farms, all, they're smaller, they're younger, they're they're not the big, you know, three thousand cow dairy farms. They're they're little um, sort of mom and pop, you know, CSAs with fifty members. But um, but there's a lot of them out there, and they're they're really interested in a lot of the same kinds of things that historic sites are preserving and talking about. Um, so the question is, how do, you, how do you bring those together? So I think I will stop with that and uh, let Michelle and John sort of lead us, lead us on. there a minute ago. Yeah. So we'll pick it up from your stick. fingered. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so fascinating, fascinating history that Kathy is um, currently uncovering to help us understand how we got as institutions so far away from having um, relevant things to say and to share about producing food and consuming food as uh, sites of learning. So um, I wanted to begin, I have a few quotes sprinkled in here, and I wanted to begin with this one, which I'll just let you read. Um, because I think that we are all recognizing that changes, we live in a time of change, and if we would like our sites to thrive and continue to provide a public service, uh, we really need to drive ourselves to do that and to consider being of relevant institutions that do connect to these contemporary questions and problems and interest. Um, so I am certainly a fan of this uh, quote that we do need to increase um, increase our attention to the issues that confront our region and the world now and in the future. And to just want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of food. I'm sure many of you are already following it, interested in it, because it probably brought you in here today in part. But I think we can easily say that we're living in a time at which um, the interest in food and in changing the way we use and produce food is a movement. It's actually become a very large social movement. I've heard it compared to where the environmental movement was in the early 1970s, for instance, that resulted in so much change. So we know today that people are really interested in lots of topics related to food. People are seeking out more organic food and working hard to it. Um, Between 1990 and 2008, the sales in the U.S. of organic food grew from $1 billion in 1990 to $23 billion in 2008. 
Um, the organic food sales are anticipated to continue increasing on an average of 18% a year through the next few years. And nearly a quarter of American shoppers are now buying organic produce once a week. And that used to be a really fringe activity. Um, the number of farmers markets is also increasing. On Tuesday when I arrived, I looked up Utah downtown and found a wonderful market in operation, also going on this morning until 1, so if you want to get out there, you can. Um, this this is not unusual. Around the nation, the number of farmers markets is really growing. Um, it's now reaching, <clears throat> let me go to my next slide here. Um, as you can see, a really market increase. In 2008, there were 4,600 farmers markets. That was a 6.8 increase above 2006. They only began tracking farmers markets in 19 the USDA, but since then, it's grown by over half in only that short amount um, of time. As Kathy mentioned, the number of small-scale organic farms has really been increasing. It's a, it's a growth sector in agriculture, which is quite interesting at a time when industrial agriculture uh, is open to so many critiques. There, those uh, farms have increased by about 8% from 2002 to 2009, and particularly in New England, um, the amount of land that is now incorporated on a farm has increased a great deal, um, up to, I think, in 2007, which is my most recent figure, it was over 4 million acres, and that was up above um, only about uh, 38 million acres in 2007, so coming um, coming along quickly. Um Similar statistics for all of the individual states in New England where, where I work and, and look uh, at what's happening. We also know that gardening has been growing. Um, that certainly not, uh, not independent of the example set by Michelle Obama and her choice to adopt um, food, health, obesity, um, and healthy eating as part of her platform as First Lady. Um, in 2009, more than 43 million households did some growing of their own fruit, vegetables, food production, and that's a 20% increase over the previous year, and I think this continues to be um, a very interesting sector to watch. There's lots going on in pop culture. How many of you have read one of these books? A lot of people. So, um, and these, this is just a sampling of some of the biggies as far as uh, books that have made a hit in the popular press, have changed people's behaviors, have gotten them interested in this topic. Um, all of these deal with uh, some idea of critiquing the current food system that's available through mass market sources and finding alternatives that can be accessed uh, as an individual at home through local networks. So this is just a sample, but there are many, many more um, similar resources out there, including, um, I should say, print publications. Actually, John, maybe you could grab uh, the edible magazine that's underneath that other one. Pass that around. Um, this is a publication you might have in your own town or city or state, and it's a franchise where people can adopt the format and then use it to share information about their local food resources. And just pick that up at the farmer's market here. Uh, it's become quite a network that um, publications and reading material about local food. Movies, again, who's seen one of these movies? <clears throat> um, immense, slick, big-budget films that have um, drawn audiences and sparked quite a bit of discussion. So we know that this is of, of great interest. And then, I don't know about your states and your regions, but we have had, uh, in the places that I've been working, lots of projects that invite people to take part in some way or another in the local food economy, such as the 100-mile diet, where you're encouraged to identify sources of food that are within 100 miles from where you live and patronize those farms, um, those ranches, those orchards, in order to help support that farm economy that is perhaps yet still small-scale, 
but hopes to grow. And uh, by developing these projects, which may change your habits for the short term, you might um, continue to patronize those places in the longer term. So it's certain people are really looking to change the way they eat, to change what's available to them to eat. And also, I think, um, even on a more a level of personal meaning, looking to feel more connected to their place and to the regional um, sense of place that they have, the regional heritage and history that comes with living somewhere, and to feel a bit more of a close connection between the people who sustain them by producing food and uh, their own tables. So just to go back there, this is an image from Strawberry Bank where I um, worked most recently before going to Peabody Essex Museum. And it's a wonderful example of a place that has a lot to offer to the public in terms of helping people understand what happened to our food, what did it used to be like, what what changes did it undergo, how is it different now, and how did it get that way. Um, Strawberry Bank is a lovely site to do this on because it interprets change over time. So there's 400 years of installations uh, depicting different moments in history. But I do believe that just about any site will have um, some resources for this. So just a quick survey. How many of your historic sites contain a farm or a garden facility. Great. And then how many have um, kitchens or uh, food interpretation going on? And how many uh, might have transportation components that connect with food shipping and moving food around the country? So there are these many, many avenues that you can start, and that's only a few, but... um, there, it's almost impossible to have a historic site or a historic installation where human beings are being depicted as having lived without having something to talk about uh, regarding food. So this is that personal meaning issue. A couple of quotes here that I think uh, really express why our visitors are um, thinking about food and perhaps beginning to approach our institutions as a place to learn more. And this is where I think that broken connection between the pastness of a historic farm that's presented merely as another time, another place, a romantic side trip for a day to mull a little bit about your ancestors or your your nation, um, that this is where we can cross that bridge and become so much more personally relevant to people who are looking for meaning and for practical information uh, that you have. And this is what is amazing to me. Historic sites have information that people are desperate for, and you'll be hearing more about that. And we should be recognizing it and saying, come to us. We can help you with this project. So at Strawberry Bank, this was um, a likely something. The land that the uh, city is, is built on originally probably looked something like the salt marsh. So you can always begin wherever your site may be with the first people of that site and look back into the native heritage of your region and the um, natural resources that were in place when people first uh, began to migrate from across the ocean and begin to... Uh, change what was available there. But that is always a place to begin and a place to include because what you often find is that the, the food of the first peoples continues and has been hybridized with cuisines brought in by other people um, as they've gradually immigrated to the site. Um, you know, things like, simple things like maple syrup and certain varieties of bean and uh, squash and so forth have been incorporated into iconic New England cuisines, and they are certainly uh, a Creole food that was developed by people in communication with one another, sharing different food traditions. Um, at our site, we looked quite a bit about why people came there in the first place, and fishing was one of the underpinnings of the first economy that the European settlers brought with them. They came there to fish, and these um, codfish like these really drove their presence. So there's a, a long, long history of commercial fishing on that uh, that area that we can go into. Um, 
excuse me, looks like I'm kind of skipping the entire 19th century by accident, but um, there's a whole fascinating story that Kathy was alluding to with the, you know, very... Uh, very interesting changes in transportation and shipping. It's a fallacy to think that people weren't eating globally in the 17th century, even the 16th century, because they certainly were. And food cargoes were among the most important cargoes being shipped around uh, the world. But that continues and intensifies in the 19th century. And the um, uniting of the railroads crossing the continent made food available faster, made produce available from the West Coast within a matter of days, certainly gave rise to the development of our <clears throat> our contemporary beef and uh, meat industry. All that is here to talk about. And then when it gets into the 20th century, there's a sort of progression of events around food and um, projects in which our government and other agencies were interested in promoting different types of consumption. These are all from the World War I era when uh, there was a lot of shortage going on because shipping was so disrupted, economies were so disrupted, that grain, sugar, meat, these things all became uh, very hard to find. There was also a lot of hoarding. And so there was uh, an encouragement to change the way you ate and to pick a day of the week to eat meatless. How contemporary is that? Um, to avoid, use corn and oats instead of wheat flour. Also pretty contemporary. So if you can find the sources around your site that talk about that type of a gluten-free diet or a meatless uh, Monday, you can be very up to date. Many of us have sites that touch on issues of food supply, and these uh, photos are from the Depression era in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where Strawberry Bank is. The woman in the top is reminiscing about the hunger and the poverty that um, people had to endure. They waited on lines to get uh, food um, shared with them from uh, government sources. They depended on each other to help even out a very uneven food supply so that they would borrow from neighbors and then share with neighbors when they had a surplus. Um, and most of our 20th century sites will have some connection to that. Very similarly, World War II. Uh, if you touch on this at all, because partly and because of the hoarding that was going on in World War I and the lack of availability of food, that's one of the main reasons the rationing system was put into place. It was an attempt to control the food supply and prevent hoarding so you could not stockpile or make your you know, three-month emergency kit um, at the time. And it was really uh, oriented toward helping to make sure that there was a steady food supply and also um, one that covered its nutritional basis as nutrition science is being developed and and uh, explored. Many of you are familiar with the Victory Garden movement. This is a remarkable thing. I know John will talk more about it, so I won't say too much, but it was a situation in which uh, an industrialized America, in which most people for the first time are now living, um, and did not necessarily garden, because that was back in the old, you know, back when the family was still on the land and back when they were less urbanized, um, turned from being non-gardeners to gardeners and producing so much of their own food. It's shocking. And then, of course, the 1950s, and we um, can talk a lot and you can read a lot about what helped to produce our um, the food system that we have today. There are a lot of cultural factors, historical factors driving that, including um, government programs and investments, the uh, post-war boom and the incredible surplus that, that started to be available to people, uh, the, the, again, petroleum economy, which is a great way of thinking about the rise of the supermarket and that sort of sense that you know, any time of day you can walk in and have a seasonless bounty of food available to you um, because of refrigeration, storage, and shipping. And, uh, you know, this kid here with the Sunday bigger than his head, just, yeah, like, let's eat as much as we can. Um, oddly enough, during the 50s, that's one of the lowest time, lowest calorie consumption per capita in the 20th century. But you never know it, looking at the enthusiasm that all these folks have for food. And I certainly think that the adults of the time, 
um, who could remember the shortages of World War II, the shortages of the Depression, who had grown up with a perennially unsteady, tenuous food supply, were exceedingly happy to be able to offer their families this kind of bounty. So I think remembering their, the, the good intentions that lay behind a lot of these changes is also important. Um, we come to today, and if you read about the developments in the 1960s with food policy and subsidies, um, you can learn a lot about the work that was done to drive food prices down. The dream was um, there will a there will be a green revolution, and we're going to grow so much food we'll be able to feed the world and feed ourselves forever, and it will play into our sort of American dominance by being the place that can uh, help to manage the world food economy. We also will drive food prices down so low that calories will be accessible to almost everybody very easily. So looking at these prices, I'm still in awe when I see something like a hamburger offered for $1. That's a lot of investment in terms of resources going into that. But through um, subsidizing fuels, subsidizing grains, subsidizing sugars, subsidizing meats, uh, we end up being able to drive these prices down. And again, I think that there were uh, when you look at the intentions and the processes behind this, it's a fascinating discussion. It didn't happen by accident, um, but we have been taught over a few decades to value low price, high convenience, um, and you know easy access to our food, and to kind of take the labor work strain and stress out of food. And there are some downsides to that. So um, now we are beginning to look at the health impacts and the um, disconnection from our own economies that this system has helped to create. In response to that, there are a number of movements, and I will speak about slow food because I know it well, but there are many, many eat local movements, sustainable farming movements. Um, you can identify lots of groups working in this area, but they are they share one thing in common, and that is providing an alternative and a response to this food system, which has started to create some negatives. Um, slow food believes in a very simple precept, and the idea is that it exists to promote food that is good, clean, and fair. And by that good, you know, it's a very large value. It's good tasting. Um, it's good for you. It's good for the planet. It doesn't create harmful environmental effects. Clean um, also talks about the environmental effects, being able to have access to food that is in a good condition. And fair is a fair labor issue, a fair access issue. So trying to return these values that it was felt were in place uh, in past times, how true that it was is debatable, but the, to return the, these values to food production as a companion to our other values or perhaps an alternative to our other values of convenience and access. So how does this play into what happens at your site? When I walk around or look around at all of these historic sites that we all get to visit so often, I'm just in awe of the things that they have and they know that our visitors are coming um, to us looking for. They go to the web looking for, the library, the video store. We don't have those anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, people are looking for this information that we that we maintain. Um, seasonality is a big part of that. What do people do at different times of the year? What do they eat at different times of the year? So I'm going to suggest a few few topic areas that your site may develop programs in. Um, how did they react to conditions of climate? How did they store the harvest? Um, how did they deal with the shortage times when there was little fresh food? And what did they cook? How did they prepare those foods? Um, biodiversity, John will touch more on this, but um, our sites often are harbors for heirloom plants and heritage breeds and um, methods and materials that are no longer practiced around food that might make some things edible that we don't find in our grocery store. So looking at the different types and varieties of food that your site has um, presented is an excellent way to introduce the concept of biodiversity and why it might be important to maintain 
genetic variety in our food supply. Um, your site may be able to identify in the primary sources what are the community traditions around food. There are so many rituals, particularly around farming uh, and practices, that range from um, religious topics to festivals, harvests, uh, particular kinds of meals, and things that people looked forward to that would come into season for a very short time. We um, have done lots of things like that. This is, happens to be a picture of a contra dance that we had as a harvest festival on Strawberry Bank. And again, a delightful way people um, found to connect not only to the food itself, but to the culture surrounding food and the traditions that um, were maintained around that food supply. You may be able to find partnerships that connect with projects and events going on in your community around the food supply. This is a poster from a fish and lobster festival where with um, New Hampshire, tiny seacoast had a small population of commercial fishermen who have a very difficult time competing with the larger states, Maine and Massachusetts, and they also um, are working within a very strict regulatory environment. We were trying to help them reach an audience that would pay a premium for locally landed seafood wanting to support their local fishermen. And so bringing into that festival um, the preparation of codfish cakes from a 17th century recipe that our staff were preparing as an interpretation at Strawberry Bank and connecting this contemporary issue with the 400-year span of commercial fishing history um, allowed us to reach an audience of thousands of people who came out to eat a little good seafood but ended up discovering um, how, much, how deeply those roots ran. Uh, you have knowledge at your site, how to cultivate different kinds of food, how to handle livestock, how to prepare, uh, how to preserve, usable skills you can teach people, as um, John may touch on today. And, of course, the meaningful, memorable experience of kind of, you know, doing the work, mucking out the stalls, that sort of thing. So I'm going to close on this uh, slide that comes from Hal Scramstead. And this is, again, that call to action to say these, this is an avenue which we can not only be serving an audience, but we can be help, helping to move the society forward in a very broad way by, by sharing the knowledge that we have and have painstakingly developed over time and inviting people to become um, more informed and more able to change their own relationship with food. So I'll close there and hand it over to John. Um, who is uh, working contemporary right now at Strawberry Bank and doing quite a bit of um, programming around food. So he'll have some pragmatic visions of uh, what you might do for programs and also some resources and topics that you can develop. Ordinarily, Michelle has the most melodic voice. You should hear her sing. Um, not sounding like Marge Simpson most days. <laughs> I can't believe how well you've endured. Um, her sister has the higher pitch, it's true. The non-heavy smoking version. Um, so while I'm getting this up and running, I'd love for all of you to think about the very first plant you ever connected with, a vegetable or a fruit or herb or flower. Anybody? Would you just shout things out while I focus here? <laughs> Okra, tomato, sage, rutabaga. What was the last one? Fig. Good life. <laughs> Um, what else? A few more? Well, think about who connected you to those plants. If it came with a, a sense of seasonality or recipes, a sense of place that came with that, who were some of the people that taught you? Grandmother, Grandmother parents, neighbors. We are that next generation of garden stewards now. On average, kids uh, in studies are shown to know less than 10 plants and animals in their own backyard. 
but over a thousand corporate logos. Guess what? We're in the business of alternative education. <laughs> and in a site like Strawberry Bank, when we can look to the past, that native waterway, uh, a Victorian landscape, or a 19th century, very industrial landscape where that waterway was actually so run down and over time filled in to look like this in present-day Strawberry Bank that we have opportunities to learn from the good, the bad, and the ugly of our past, and food history is one of those connections that we can offer in our communities. Where I grew up, it was across the street from a 1685 shipbuilding tavern, and the shipwright's house had a Roxbury russet apple, or a russet apple in front of it that the entire neighborhood would be out in front of playing. Those are the sorts of memories that our sites can help connect up people to and teach from so that sometimes if we're looking at our living collections, it's worth taking a second look from below the ground to up in the trees. Um, at Strawberry Bank, in our earliest gardens that date to late 17th century, we have archaeobotanical evidence, seed and pollen analysis, seed packets that we find in the walls of houses in the neighborhoods that show us things like uh, cranberry beans, the, the ones that were found in the walls, today's version, um, we're working with things like orchard trees that still exist on the site, um, varieties that really speak to Portsmouth and New Hampshire's uh, historic background. Also, still room books and receipt books that tell us a story of how people were working with food on that site. Even things like pottery made by Celia Thaxter that often depicts some of the botanicals from our region, incorporates poetry at a time when we're looking back in our history already romanticizing the past that was slipping away and trying to bring those things forward in a site so that they have a new relevance. Some of the earlier source material can be paired up wonderfully with things like the raft or renewing American food traditions uh, books that help us take a look at our regional history. Michelle mentioned um, some of the work of Slow Food and I'll get into that more soon but in Slow Food even though it's an international movement it doesn't say cook like an Italian because the founder's from Italy, it helps us re-examine the food ways of our own regions and bring those to the forefront. So uh, there have been regional works done all around the country. The one I helped with was Foods at Risk in New England and the Maritime Provinces, which gives a really wonderful resource looking at the fish and the fisheries, the, the native, uh, well, the animals that were present here, but then the rare breeds and the heirloom plants that came, came around through our history with every, every generation of immigrant that arrived here. Just to get a better sense of who's in the room, how many of you are familiar with what an heirloom plant means? Great. So tell me a little bit. What is, what is an heirloom? What makes it an heirloom? Okay. What else? You can save the seeds. They're open pollinated so that you can hand them down from one generation to the next. Hybrids are genetic clones, and that's not something that you're enabled to do, but they've been mostly in the last century, especially adapted to the use of agribusiness. Heirloom seeds are about preservation of your backyard in your region, the water, the light, the length of season, increasing productivity, your cultural group like the red one, the purple one, whatever it might be, is plucked out in that story. 
and preserved. And so for museums that largely were formed around preservation of buildings, now we have a chance to bring to life the stories in those buildings, in those kitchens, in those backyards. And even though, as Michelle said, we have a long history of food coming from other places, we also have a long history of every one of our backyards being cultivated through history to maximize the potential of what you could bring to the table in your own house. Everybody was, in effect, a household botanist. Women were trained around the table and around the hearth to know how those plants were used and to build into recipes and into seasonal observations that plant's attributes so that the next generation learned it as well. So with that, we also create plant files that we teach our staff with that take them, in this instance, through four centuries or more of the history of that plant and its relevance on on our site so that they can take that and period recipes and bring these things to table. A big part beyond just what happens in our museum is connecting it out connecting it up to the larger community so that those heirloom seeds are not just preserved in our backyard gardens but that they are a gift back to the region we serve so that people understand the seeds that were planted there. So with initiatives that we've created and partnerships, we're doing things like, um, in this instance, we were gathering for a, a, a dinner that was put on with a a PBS personality that was a fundraiser, but um, gathering from the gardens and working with chefs who are taking heirloom plants and presenting them in new ways so that they are adapted to a modern palate, though period recipes work just fine as well. Um, Working with kids in our gardens. In this instance, they're harvesting uh, black radish seed pods, and those are going to be pickled. So they're learning about pickling and preservation, but they're also learning about seed saving at the same time that a period recipe is bringing all that forward. We're saving the seeds of things like American chestnuts from surviving trees across the river and planting those out so that they come alive on our site for the future. And preparing foods from our own gardens so that people understand that you can eat these heirloom plants in our region even nearly 10 months a year from your own backyard. As well, we're seeing the farmers in our farmers' markets taking great pride in growing out things like those cranberry beans and gillfeather turnips and the plants of place so that we set a tone for a whole community of chefs and market uh, growers to be cultivating those seeds from the past. We take opportunity whenever we can to use our programs to bring out the fun and the learning that's there, the potential in it. This is a hand-tinted postcard from 1908 of our Aldrich house. There's a hops arbor on the back, and when we restored this garden for its 100th anniversary, we took opportunity to do all that in front of the public because they can learn from the process, but in in addition to the process of restoring a garden, We also took that hops for the first time in over 100 years and brewed with it and made Aldrich Ale and Bad Boy Brew so that a whole community could taste this. And now that brewery continues to work with us in many ways and even gives funds back as we continue to pair up with them and um, those brews go out on tap. We've built community gardens where when I arrived we just had cutting gardens. They now serve almost 30 families in our community. And all we ask is that they garden organically and that if they can afford it, they try to become a member of the museum and that they grow at least one heirloom plant in their garden. 
We've partnered up with master gardeners to create spaces within our teaching garden, a, a Victorian children's garden that I put in about five years ago, to put in seed panels on heirloom seeds and plants that when I put in this garden for kids, I've been fascinated to watch how intergenerational it is, how many grandparents are back in that leadership role of teaching from a garden, but they're learning together, the kids and the grandparents. And in many ways, the, science, the exhibit panels that I put out in this teaching garden are explaining concepts from our other garden that sometimes went without explanation unless you were on one of our garden tours or unless you had a master gardener-led program in the children's garden. We work a lot with those family garden crafts. We put them up on our website. We have daily foodways programs that help bring focus to what was in the garden just a few minutes ago and how it came to life through an 18th century hearth cook or on the coal stove of a 19th century Jewish uh, Ukrainian immigrant in our neighborhood. Finding new opportunities to teach in ways like that, but also putting some focus on our native plants and foodstuffs as well. The beans, the corn, the squash, all of which we know are being grown in that region for nearly 1,200 years. Taking some of the things that come from the bounty of harvest in our gardens and teaching how to distill Things like rose water, lavender water that were the flavors in our uh, cooking before vanilla comes along. So a lot more hands-on, but then also opportunities like Listen to the Landscape, um, uh, an app that we created just two years ago that you can use on cell phone or iPhone that people can learn about biodiversity and food ways and many topics throughout the site, on the site or at home. Well, with slow food... Again, we're trying to pluck out those stories and keep biodiversity alive. And that's a difficult conversation for so many of our visitors. But if we can use this platform to help people understand that history has brought us to this place. This is a great graphic from National Geographic. If you didn't see the article, it was two summers ago, in which basically they've outlined how heirloom plants will help save the future of agriculture in this country. But this is a graphic that's, if you can see it well enough, is showing how over the last hundred years we've lost over 90% of the genetic diversity among the food crops that fed the world. That's hard for a lot of people to imagine. When you walk into a supermarket and it seems like you have the world there at your fingertips. But you know in your community there was an apple that they were proud of and that there was a bean they were famous for and a green that they all knew about and a turnip that they just thought was the bee's knees because you could eat the leaves, you could pickle the pods, you could eat the roots, it overwintered in the ground. They had methods that were important to preserve so that we can, re we can put back these regional economies as needs be. Um, <coughs> When we gather every other year in Italy for things like this, this is Terra Madre, which is sometimes known as the Farmers United Nations. We are also gathering to discuss food policy around the world, take best practices, look at indigenous peoples and their food ways from around the world and how those things are getting back into market. We're creating events. In this instance, we're showing a farm picnic that we have that puts this out in front of everybody, families, and makes it a fun event day, but we also have events like a 100-mile Thanksgiving, which started as a way to celebrate regional foodways. Then it became a 50-mile Thanksgiving, 
This year, it's turning into a 25-mile Thanksgiving because that much has changed in our local economies. And it's interesting to me to see museums helping lead the way in this charge because we all know that if we're looking at petroleum economies, that model is shifting. And one of our greatest threats to national security is the loss of local farmland in so many ways. You know, earlier you saw that image of the farmer and the Statue of Liberty. Heirloom seeds are about preserving a vital democracy in so many ways. And so we're keeping those things alive, bringing them forward, and putting it into a discussion that does have meaning and resonance for our visitors. And it's often just gathering around a table. I think a lot of people associate us with slowing a pace. It's not necessarily what we have to do, but it is what they come to us for in many ways. We might try to develop iPhone apps and all of these things, but at the same time, they are coming to remember uh, skill sets, times that are in some ways slower, which is a big part of Slow Food's mission. It didn't just come as a way to counter the fast food industry, but it it was a way of saying we are living in a frenetic culture, and it's a nice thing to slow the pace and come to appreciate what is in your backyard. We pair up with other organizations like the Herb Society that will help me take things like our plant files and offer workshops so that suddenly we're taking something like Angelica that's in a historical document and learning how to candy it, learning how to make chartreuse, or learning that that same route that the first colonists used here as a medicine for asthma and pneumonia is Dong Kwai in Chinese herbal medicine and that it's still used the same way today helping us pair up historical understanding of herbs with contemporary science so that we understand the chemical constituents in these plants and can tell a whole new story as ethnobotanists about the past and how food was our medicine. Let the cook be the physician. You are what you eat. Or because of Michelle, sorry to use a pointer, I think I just dissolved her leg. Um, because of Michelle, actually, Michael Pollan picks up a quote from my little old Italian grandmother saying it's better to pay the grocer than the doctor, which was a common 19th century adage. These are things that we're reminded of. Kale growing in our gardens is a medicine that's about helping with colon cancer. A few years ago, they tried to turn it into pills. Today we realize a pill does nothing for you. You need to eat your damn roughage. And that's how history presented that herb to us. So it's bringing old models to life from the past. One of my favorites in our site is our victory garden. This is one of our role players who, yes, a position to look a little bit like the Rosie the Riveter, but doing programs in our gardens, putting in exhibit panels that it was so great to have, actually, the Obamas there two, three weeks ago, and Michelle Obama knowing that their organic victory garden on the White House lawn is written about on an exhibit panel in our garden along with Eleanor Roosevelt and a connection to history, but most importantly, a history that for a nation that thinks maybe we can't make changes, that's a great reminder that almost half of our nation's produce was grown in backyard victory gardens during World War II. And that's an empowering thing to teach kids and take them along with on a journey. There was a great campaign on saying this lawn has gone to war. Take up the weapons of war. Spades, shovels, and hoes. Dig up your useless lawn and plant a garden. Our exhibit panels pose a challenge to families to ask, you know, where could we dig up some lawn and put in a garden? Teaching how to can and offering canning workshops 
and reminding them that sometimes it's as simple as, you know, I love this one, try organic food, or as your grandparents called it, food. We think we've gone through this for ages. This is all such a new thing to be caught up in the, the food trap that we are in. And so I also think of the, our, the skills that we teach as an organic gardening site as being as valuable as the heirloom plants we're preserving for the future because it's another way, like our historic food ways, to teach a skill set. Working again with local breweries and distilleries, this was putting up um, rose water and angelica syrup and a number of things that we'd be using. Working from our orchards and cider, working to press cider, this is an elderberry cordial we put up this fall. This is working with the head of Dogfish Head Brewery in Portsmouth Brewery to make an ancient gruit on our, from our site. Also working with rare breeds, conservation, and related food production. As we say in Slow Food, if you want to preserve rare breeds and heirloom plants for the future, the best thing you can do is eat them. <laughs> I know it sounds counterintuitive, but as a museum, if we can help put these things back into circulation for the future, we are keeping a market demand for them. And while consumer economies can have their challenges, this is one of the better sides of that. Whether it's looking at local um, fisheries and that whole tradition, or the rare breed animals that could, well, could exist in nature more so than a lot of the uh, animals that are raised on farms today. We have an opportunity to teach from these things. When I was at Plymouth Plantation, I will never forget a moment when a parent was asked by a kid that was watching a milking Devon being milked if that's where their milk came from. And the mother grabbed the kid by the hand and said, not our milk, and marched the kid away. We have a huge disconnect <laughs> in this country. So whenever I can take opportunity to leave potatoes in the ground until I have a group of school kids there, or to pull up carrots that are white or yellow or red with a group of kids, we work on that. But it's not just the romantic side. It's also things like butchering in front of the public. When I was at Plymouth Plantation, when we, when we would butcher in front of the public, we weren't killing the animal there. But I'll tell you, it, it impacts you profoundly, and you have a greater respect for meat if you continue to eat it. And using every part of that animal becomes something you really understand and value. But also through slow food, it's about reconnecting this up with local artisanal foods so that we are using every part of that animal and bringing it to good use. In the coming year, we're also hoping to get chickens back on our site. We know that just as much as we had gardens in every backyard, we had chicken coops in backyards. And starting to build on that, because we inherited a system where you couldn't hang out your laundry, you couldn't have animals, and these things we're helping reform in our culture again. And I know that's an odd word to use. but So in many ways, I think we're helping to create a new artisanal foods movement, but also a new arts and crafts movement. We've done this so many times in histories, in our history, and museums have played varied roles in that. And sometimes we get things right, sometimes we don't. But if we're not trying to just replicate one thing, but we're taking a native plant and preserving it, or an ingredient, we're teaching new ways from old ways, using sumac as a spile for maple syruping or making za'atar from sumac. I think of that kid saying, drink a glass of orange juice every day in the 50s image that Michelle showed. 
That has 500 times the vitamin C of an orange. We knew how locally to get what we needed from our regional environments. Working with things like sea vegetables. If we know that our fisheries are floundering, and I really didn't mean that <laughs> at all, that, um, then let's look at sea vegetables and a long history and tradition of using these things in our gardens and in our food ways teaching uh, ways, offering workshops like we do through Slow Food and our food ways, teaching baking practices, going out and foraging. Uh, we've been, I've been writing a lot of articles on foraging in lo the local media and gathering up historic things that we know of as weeds today. Taking inspiration, like these are 18th century, well, our carpenter believes they are of 18th century design, hives in Portsmouth and trying to replicate them as we're putting bees back on our site now as well, so that we reintroduce elements of regional culture. Recently, I was up with, well, we call them the four food groups in Portsmouth, and they've grown now. Slow Food was one of the founding groups there, but we're building on this tradition, and a few of us went up to Hardwick, Maine, uh, Vermont. I'm not sure of how many of you have heard of the book, The Town That Foods, but in Hardwick, Industrial parks, and I'll be, this is my last slide. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I know. Um, in Hardwick, when you go to an industrial park, the multi-million dollar businesses there are things like an organic heirloom seed company, composting facilities, cheese caves, maple syrup companies, um, Pete's Greens, which is growing out acres. I mean, incredible production that standard agriculture couldn't keep up with. New models of sustainable agriculture and companies that are coming to the forefront because of what we can learn from regional backgrounds. So in that I say, blessed are the cheese makers, the soap makers, the woodworkers, the fence menders, all of these things that we've been teaching on our sites because we think it's quaint. In so many ways we're learning that we're helping to recreate some stronger new local economies around what we have here. And so also, blessed are the seed savers. In this, I wanted to take you through and just show you quickly that for those, and I had a similar image to Michelle because I think we have some of these traditions that are fun to, to learn from, but I think our visitors are looking for a greater depth of learning. And one of the things we know is if a visitor comes to our site and we tell them a story, a year later they might remember 10% of it if they've just had a passive learning experience. But if you teach somebody a skill and get them engaged hands-on, they'll remember as much as 70% a year later. People are looking to us for that depth of learning, for things that they go away with with their family. And so I'm, at, I'm curious for all of you to, you know, to hear what you would suggest might be some of the food stories that your site tells. And if seed saving can be one of them, just want to do a quick little seed saving demo. And then also for any of you that want afterwards, because we, we want to give time for questions, I'd love to share the seeds of these. These are something called a West India gherkin cucumber. They go back to the 17th and 18th century. And what's going on then? You've got the whole triangle of trade. And what is that, where does that involve? What parts of the world? Well, actually, then that's the most important part in this equation. These don't come from the West Indies, as it sounds they do. 
uh, sounds that they do, but they came from Africa with the slave trade. But it was the perfect kind of burr cucumber um, that you could pickle whole. How many of you have saved your own seeds? You know, have you read about tomatoes and how you have to soak them and have to float them and all of that? We can be so confounded by how difficult things are made to be. But really, what I watched my 19th century grandparents do and what I also see in the walls of our houses in the neighborhood is people just stitching up seeds in brown paper through the ages. Um, It's as simple as taking a shopping bag. What seeds would you save? If you're saving an heirloom plant, do you want anything in particular? You want, say, the sweetest tomato or the first one to come in, the one that didn't split, the one that had a healthy vine. You're always looking for your very best produce so that you're saving... Boy, that smells good. (laughs) Sit that for a while. It'll do you good. Um, (laughs) You'd eat the fruit, but if you were saving your first tomato in... That does an awful lot for you, but you're still eating the plant. So basically, and I'll show you what I've done, you're just pushing out the seeds. You get to eat the rest of the plant as well. But um, thanks, Michelle, that's a good idea. (laughs) It really smells incredible. Um, Basically, what you would be doing is smearing the seeds on the side of brown paper. Put that up on top of your ice box, as I used to hear growing up, or your refrigerator. And then in a few weeks after it's dried out, you just fold it up, write West India Gherkin on it, or brandy wine, and save that. But remember, brandy wine's great if you're from Pennsylvania. What we all need to do is be thinking about the plant that was grown in our backyard where we live. So with that, um, <laughs> I just want to put out that fun little challenge and say this is how we continue this whole process. This is how we move things along, and it's important to not give up in the middle but make those connections for everybody. So why don't we... Kathy's got a question. Well, we were going to launch with this question, which I'm actually almost sorry to bring up now because this is such a hopeful vision, and John's absolutely right. This stuff is, is really just burgeoning. There's all kinds of new things happening. I was going to pull back to the kind of the question of of kind of obstacles or where people, you know, if, if you are working in this direction, but do you come up against c- kind of stumbling points? Um, are there any of those that you can identify that we might kind of collectively think through in the bit of the time we have? That was actually going to be a question Great. anyway. People, um, we have done short teaching classes in the past. Um, they were very popular. Our issue is, of course, people obviously desperately want to be in these short spaces in which to cook. There's a size limitation. Yeah. yeah. Um, what can we 
do that will accommodate enough people to make it worth our time and effort and energy and still be a unique experience they would not get at a non-historical place. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts, and certainly the audience as well if you have thoughts. Um, it's a tough one, and I've certainly struggled struggled with that. I think the class model, that is definitely one band of strand of programming. But you're right, not everything needs to be the depth of a class. Um, we were pretty successful in designating a, a single kitchen at first on the grounds of Strawberry Bank as the locus for um, uh, third-person interpretation of food and food waste. And the curriculum that we developed for that space was very much about small engagements, like you know doing one part of a process or... Um, and, and in fact, we find that people tend to linger and stay. A couple things to explore. I know the historic spaces are important, but partnering or pairing with a community organization that has a larger kitchen, do a tour, do a tasting, do something in the space, and then transition yourself, if it's possible, to a larger location. Um, try to partnerships if you have a food facility on site that isn't used at certain hours of the day or times of year to be able to use a more commercial-sized kitchen. Um, those are some ideas that occur. And also take it and taking it outdoors when possible. We used to do a lot of stuff out in the yard where you could have a couple of tables and 12 or 14 people uh, much more easily. Any, any other thoughts from anybody? Well, pairing with other organizations, but sometimes it's taking a rare breed or an heirloom ingredient and turning it out to a larger community so you can have tastings or dinners that feed hundreds of people. Um, if you are working within the confines of a historic site, again, doing a lot in prep kitchens before, teaching a process, but then offering a, a taste of, um, I think, can work effectively. I think a lot of us are also confronted with the idea of feeding people from our gardens, and that's not something that you can walk through a garden and pull up a carrot and say, here, try this. But what I also think is important to do is model that all of this is good, healthy produce. So when I'm taking people on our daily garden tours or somebody else's, We'll often pick something up, take a bite out of it, and talk about it so that they know that. I'm not going to then say to them, don't try a Roxbury russet apple, but I didn't tell them to eat it. And there's a big difference. And those things remind people that this is connection to good, clean, fair food. One of our biggest challenges is complying with health regulations. Mm-hmm. And that's why pairing up with people who have certified kitchens is so important because I do feel like in all of our slow food events especially, which many are held at the museum, we alternate between potlucks that take place and major events so that there's always somebody with a certified kitchen that we can work with or a behind-the-scenes kitchen that does offer that clean food and taste. Like, for example, they start clubs. Right, so... No, that's a great suggestion, too. I was going to say to, to look in your uh, region for culinary schools within universities as well, because we had great success serving food on our site by partnering with student chefs who are all licensed. They bring all their own stuff. It's a brilliant thing. And we could work to provide the produce for them and to provide the recipes, which they would then adapt. And in fact, this is such a prop popular interest that culinary schools are asking their own, their students to learn about heirloom vegetables, traditional recipes. So it actually is a, one of those partnerships where we both gain a lot. And I would suggest looking to do, you know, maybe single events where you have that um, opportunity to work with people who have prepared something fully licensed in a commercial kitchen and are licensed to serve it. 
Um, we all have different regulatory environments. That's another aspect, I think, of participating in this local food movement is um, not all the regulations make complete sense. We would be great if we had some educational variances that we could use on our sites. Um, we also need to think about how this fits into our strategic plans, where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, nobody had a nice visitor center with videos and, you know, cash registers and stuff. They had the little kiosk, and, and that's how you got in the museum. And I'm hoping 30 years from now we will all have commercial kitchens that are licensed and legal on our sites um, for those who want them. But I think we have to think about building in facilities to accommodate these. That's not a solution for tomorrow, but I'm hoping as leaders in our own institutions we can begin moving ourselves forward, um, understanding that we, we have to comply with public health regulations we want to. But the regulations may need to be pushed a little bit from our from our end and with these allied organizations, and we need to push our sites to um, have the facilities to provide what guests want. And regulators are not necessarily kind of monolithic, just saying no. And I, I think there's an interesting history of policy and regulation that you know, to, to to have that as part of the conversation. Like, why are we so regulated? Why are we so fearful about public health and food? That that. That's part and parcel of that history of becoming more disconnected from the sources of our food. So I think I'm, I see this at the state ag department level that it seems like there is quite a conversation going on with small producers and you know things like trying to create small scale slaughterhouses so that small farmers can actually afford to have their meat slaughtered in ways that can be sold locally. That um, to, to kind of insert yourself in that conversation adds another layer to the history that, that you're talking about as well. Other obstacles or questions? Anybody worry about the politics of it? It's something that, great. <laughs> that's, that's progress. <laughs> um, anyone have anything you would like to share about successful programs that you've started on your site? or We're ready to go. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody. I hope um, please fill out your evaluation sheet. I think we would all be particularly interested in where this topic can go. Today, we've kind of created a general overview of what our institution's connection is to this. Um, what more would you like to learn? Would you like to focus more carefully on how do you work within a confined historic space? How do you do biodiversity programming related to history? If there's a subtopic or some way we can progress this in future meetings, we would love to know about those. Thank you so much for coming. Good luck with your food programming. And uh, I know I feel we can all um, be available if you would like to get in touch and, and continue the conversation online or by email. Or get some seats. Or get, come up and get some seats. <laughs>